amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. In May of 1981, two hikers attempting to raise money for charity vanished along the Appalachian Trail. Two weeks later, a horrifying discovery was made. Small-town investigators did their best to track down the person responsible, but just when the story seemed to be over, it almost happened all over again. This is Monsters. The Appalachian Trail is a famous long-distance hiking trail found in the eastern United States. It stretches approximately 2,200 miles or 3,500 kilometers along the Appalachian Mountains, running through 14 states from Georgia in the south to Maine in the north. There are many different sections of the trail, and journey lengths can range from day trips to a months-long excursion to complete the entire Appalachian Trail. It was there that Robert Mountford Jr. and Susan Ramsey found themselves back in May of 1981 on a mission to raise funds for a mental health charity run by Robert's mother. The 27-year-olds were experienced hikers and both social workers from Maine. While passing through an area known as Dismal Creek, Robert and Susan met a lone female hiker and struck up a conversation with her. The group agreed to meet again later that day for lunch near Parisburg, Virginia. The woman got to their meeting place and waited for some time, but Susan and Robert never arrived. That immediately made her concerned, thinking that something may have happened to them on the trail. The woman then reported Susan and Robert missing. Deputy Sheriff Tom Lawson was put on the case to track down the missing hikers. Lawson and several other officers walked the assumed path that Susan and Robert had most likely taken. They passed numerous hikers along the route and asked all of them whether they had seen a pair matching Robert and Susan's description. One man recalled seeing them accompanied by what he described as a strange-looking man. That sighting happened near the Wapiti shelter. The modest structure had been built the year prior to house any hikers passing through during bad weather. The officers now knew the last place Robert and Susan had been seen and that they were with an unidentified male. Further along the trail, they passed two more hikers who confirmed the sighting. They too had witnessed this strange man accompanying the pair. Their next stop was at a local small grocery store called Trent's. Maybe someone there would have more information about the missing pair. Apparently, Robert and Susan had been at the store on May 19th. 
Subsequently, a man had been visiting the store boasting to anyone who would listen that he knew what happened to the missing hikers. The authorities were told that the man's name was Lion Randall. When Lawson heard that, he assumed the character was an unhinged man who probably didn't really know what happened to the hikers. His nickname was Lion Randall, after all. The days passed without further sightings or information about Robert and Susan. On May 30th, officers arrived at the Wapiti shelter and looked around for evidence that Robert or Susan had reached that point. Inside, nothing seemed particularly odd. That was until Lawson glanced at the floorboards where there was a suspicious dark stain on the floor. Whatever had caused the stain seemed to have pooled and dripped through the floorboards, appearing almost like a black varnish. When Lawson ran his knife between the boards, he pulled it back out, finding a thick, deep red substance coating the blade. It was later determined that it was Robert Mountford's blood. Suddenly, the unassuming shelter meant to help hikers out looked like a potential murder scene. Lawson and his officers set off in different directions, fanning out from the shelter in search of any other evidence. It wasn't easy to spot anything, with a thick brush and a blanket of fallen leaves covering the area. They converged at a clearing, where an odd pile of leaves seemed to have been manually gathered up, not something the wind had blown together. The leaves were pushed away, and they began digging where they had been. They didn't have to go far before some green fabric appeared that turned out to be a sleeping bag. Inside were the remains of Susan Ramsey. The following day, the officers returned with a cadaver dog, hoping it could lead them to Robert. After latching onto a scent at the shelter, the dog walked a few hundred yards and sat down next to a tree stump. Not far under the surface, a second sleeping bag was found. Robert's remains were inside. The relevant portion of the trail was blocked off from further hikers passing through and a murder investigation was launched. Time was of the essence. Someone had committed two brutal murders with no apparent motive, and it wasn't far-fetched to assume that the assailant could strike again. Investigators developed a potential profile for their suspect. The killer was likely a physically fit man with knowledge of the local area and the trail in particular. Various items were missing from Robert and Susan, like their logbooks that would have shown places they had stopped off along the journey. Authorities believe the killer did that to make it harder for them to piece together their final movements before the murder. Autopsy results showed that Robert and Susan had a substantial meal shortly before their murder. Robert had been shot three times with one bullet found lodged in his skull. Susan's hands showed evidence of defensive wounds, meaning that Robert was likely killed first. Unlike Robert, Susan hadn't been shot. She had suffered blunt force trauma to the head and multiple stab wounds. She had also been punctured 13 times with a nail pulled from the Wapati shelter. Susan's camera was found but provided no information about the pair's trip as the film had been ripped out. Her backpack was also uncovered and, unlike the camera, it provided a lead. Susan had a book inside her backpack that she had been reading on the trail. When the book was examined, a bloody fingerprint was found on one of the pages. Despite the systems being far less extensive than what we have today, investigators were still able to track down a match. The fingerprint belonged to Randall Lee Smith. He hadn't had any run-ins with the law previously, but his fingerprint was on record since it was compulsory for a previous job he had worked as a welder at a shipping yard. Randall Lee Smith was born on June 29, 1953. In the early 80s, he would have been in his late 20s. 
He lived with his mother in Parisburg, not far from where Robert and Susan had last been seen. Parisburg is in Giles County, Virginia, which is possibly the greatest name for a county in the history of the world. From his early childhood, Randall was reclusive. He spent most of his time on his own and found it difficult to make friends. As Randall grew up, he spent countless hours exploring the Appalachian Trail, sometimes for weeks at a time. Randall's mother, for some unknown reason, used to dress him up as a little girl when he was a child. She worked long hours to try to keep a roof above their heads and was eventually able to buy a house not far from some other relatives who often looked after Randall while his mom was off working. Randall earned the nickname Lion Randall in his early teens. He was known for making up tall tales about his family's secret wealth and supposed many girlfriends. As an adult, Randall made money by working odd jobs. As previously mentioned, Randall had no prior arrest record, so the motive for the murders remained murky. Once they had a name, Lawson and a few other officers visited Randall's home, where he lived with his mother. The house was empty, so the officers forced their way inside as they had a warrant. As if it wasn't clear enough that they had their man, bloody fingerprint and all, the house provided further evidence. Multiple items that belonged to Susan and Robert were found in the home's basement. A pair of blood-stained jeans belonging to Randall were also found. They also got a glimpse into Randall's twisted mind with an extensive collection of laminated pornographic images and hospital instruments that were fashioned into sex toys. In a lazy attempt to throw off the investigation, Randall left behind a handwritten note saying he had been kidnapped and would be killed. Unsurprisingly, the investigators didn't take the note seriously. So where was Randall? As the days passed with no sign of him, authorities worried that he had taken his own life or died out in the wilderness. Lawson took a much-deserved family vacation in late June of 1981. In a somewhat miraculous turn of events, not long after Lawson arrived in South Carolina, his office got a call looking for him from another sheriff's department, believing they had found Randall Smith. That call was coming from Myrtle Beach, in the same state where Lawson was vacationing. Lawson looked at the scruffy, insect-bite-covered man and knew it was indeed Randall Smith. But there was a catch. He claimed to have amnesia and no memory of who he was or how he ended up in Myrtle Beach. Again, Lawson didn't believe that. He left the interview room and spoke with the other investigators, hatching a plan to get Randall to out himself. In Lawson's own words, quote, We told him those bites were quite serious. Told him if he didn't get medical attention, they'd get worse. That struck a nerve with the man who agreed to sign the necessary paperwork for his hospitalization. Without thinking, he scribbled his name on the page, Randall Lee Smith. 27-year-old Randall was taken back to Virginia and charged with the double murder. The investigators hoped he would reveal more about what had happened that night or his motives, but he refused to discuss any details. Giles County locals hated Randall for what he had done and wanted his sentence to reflect his crimes, be it a death sentence or life behind bars, so they were none too impressed when they heard about his plea deal. Hezekiah Osborne was the Giles County attorney at the time and he felt that they ran the risk of not getting a conviction because the case lacked a motive. That was an opinion shared by no one else around him. Robert and Susan's families agreed to the plea bargain, partly because Robert's father was an Episcopalian minister who didn't believe in the death penalty. Randall Lee Smith was sentenced to 30 years in prison, 15 years for each murder. Behind bars, Lion Randall proved to be a model inmate. 
1996, after just 15 years, technically a complete sentence for one of the murders, he was released. Randall moved back in with his mother and resumed life as usual, working odd jobs and telling his wild stories to whoever would listen. Disturbingly, that included hikers passing through. As the years rolled by, Randall Smith spent more and more time alone. His mother died in 2000, leaving the then 47-year-old with a small inheritance to live off of. When the money ran out, Randall packed up a few possessions, grabbed his fishing gear, and walked into the wilderness with his dog Bo by his side. Since he was practically a hermit with no one to miss him, it took some time for Randall's disappearance to be noticed. After six weeks of mail piled up at his home, authorities put up missing person posters around town, but he was not seen again for weeks. On May 6, 2008, Scott Johnston was out trout fishing along the creek in Giles County, not far off the Appalachian Trail. Once he had filled up his cooler, Scott jumped into his truck and set off to meet his longtime friend, Sean Farmer, at their campsite. He hadn't been driving for long when he spotted something out of the corner of his eye. It was a severely emaciated dog, mangy with a bulging belly. The dog was starving, but it had a collar on so it clearly belonged to someone. Scott then noticed an old man sitting on the creek bank, fishing rod in hand. He didn't look much better than the dog, with a hollow face and disheveled appearance. The man introduced himself as Ricky Williams and complained to Scott about there being no fish in the creek. Scott felt bad for the man and his starving dog, so he exited his truck and popped open his cooler, revealing multiple plump trout before handing him a few. Ricky expressed his gratitude and asked Scott if he was camping nearby. Scott said he was with a friend and pointed towards their campsite. Ricky explained his camp wasn't far from the area and he might stop by later. The conversation ended there and Scott drove off thinking nothing more of the interaction. They didn't know it then, but their campsite was just one and a half miles from Wapiti Shelter. Sean got to the campsite while Scott was off gathering firewood. The pair were lifelong friends who knew Dismal Creek like the back of their hands. While Sean waited for his friend to return, he was startled by a strange man emerging from the brush, followed by his mangy dog. He greeted Sean and said his name was Ricky Williams, mentioning that he knew Scott. Scott got back sometime later and found Sean and Ricky chatting away. He joined the conversation and later invited Ricky to have some pan-fried trout and beans for dinner with them. The dog had his own grilled fish. As they sat around the fire, Ricky told Sean and Scott about the outlandish adventures he had gotten up to in his younger years. He supposedly had worked for NASA and graduated from Virginia Tech. Looking at the character in front of him, Scott didn't believe a word. Still, he and Sean humored the old man, thinking he was likely a homeless alcoholic enjoying the company. Soon, the sun had disappeared and Ricky still hadn't returned to his campsite. Walking back through the woods at this time would be dangerous, especially for a man in his condition. Just as they were both thinking that, the man stood up. Come on, boy, he called to his dog. It looked as though he was leaving. What happened next would change Sean and Scott's lives forever. Before either of them could react, Ricky took a 22 caliber handgun out of his pocket, extended his arm, and shot Sean in the side of his head. Scott was next, being shot in the neck. The man turned to Sean again and shot him in the chest, but still, Sean didn't go down. Blood was pouring down his face and he was close to passing out. Scott bolted for the woods, holding his hand to his neck. That caught Ricky's attention, who shot Scott a second time. 
the bullet struck him at the base of the back of his neck. In a daze, Sean stumbled to his truck and scrambled inside. As if it was a horror movie scene, when Sean looked to his passenger side window, the gunman was standing there with his gun aimed. By some miracle, the gun was out of bullets. Sean saw his chance to escape and slammed his foot on the gas. He wasn't far from their campsite when a silhouette appeared on the road. It was Scott. Scott had to keep a finger lodged in the bullet wound in the side of his neck to stay alive. Blood would spray the vehicle interior if he eased up on the pressure. These two friends were in a race against time. They struggled to stay conscious and on the road, desperately trying to navigate the winding road and reach medical attention. Due to the remote location, there was no cell service and the nearest hospital was 30 miles away. It was doubtful they would make it there without help. The other big concern was whether their attacker would catch up with them, as Scott's truck was left behind at the campsite with the keys in the ignition. When they finally reached a string of houses, Scott jumped from the car and started banging on a door, begging the homeowner to call 911. It was Melissa Miller's house and the strange man at her door understandably shook her. When she took a glance at Scott, she screamed for her 20-year-old son to grab some towels and help. 911 was called and an ambulance was dispatched from the town of Bland, 20 miles away. Looking at the state of Scott and Sean, Melissa and her son weren't sure whether the men would survive the wait for medical help. An officer arrived with the ambulance and got Scott's description of the shooter, as Sean could not talk due to severe swelling in his mouth. Scott described the man as gaunt with graying hair. The men were rushed to the Hollybrook Community Center where helicopters could land in an open field and take them for emergency care. It was touch and go, but Scott and Sean both fully recovered. Had the bullets been a fraction in any other direction, they would have not made it out of Dismal Creek alive. Following the attack, authorities were on the lookout for Scott's vehicle, believing the man responsible was likely behind the wheel. A state trooper was driving down Sugar Run Road when he spotted a gray truck. As soon as the driver spotted his car, he tried to lose him but went off the road and flipped the vehicle. The state trooper cautiously watched the wreck and found the suspect alive, with his 22 caliber handgun lying on the roof. The two men made eye contact and the officer recalled seeing the coldest eyes he had ever seen looking back at him. He was looking at Randall Lee Smith. On the evening of May 10th, two days after the attack, a jail officer went to Randall's cell to drop off his dinner. Randall didn't take his meal from the officer through the door. He called out to him but got no answer. Randall was found unconscious on the floor. Despite attempts to revive him, Lion Randall was pronounced dead at 54 years old. He was buried alongside his mother at Fairview Cemetery. We still do not know what possessed Randall Smith to commit his crimes. Some have theorized that Susan had been his target for the double murder and Robert just stood in the way. Unfortunately, investigators could never confirm whether she had been sexually assaulted due to the condition of her remains. As for the attack on Sean and Scott, 27 years after the murders, it was as if something inside Randall had just snapped. Sean firmly believes Randall has more unknown victims, and Scott believes his death was karma for what he had done. Despite Randall and their terrifying ordeal, Sean and Scott still fish together at the river in Dismal Creek. They haven't let the actions of a monster keep them from enjoying their lives or their favorite parts of the Appalachian Mountains. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE.
That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.